Hi there. Welcome and thank you for listening in. I'm super stoked to have you with me. My name is Philip Hartmann and Being Dad is a show for dads. I meet and speak to unique dads, asking them to impart their wisdom and to share their experiences as dads with us. The reason for being dad is my own story. I became a father five times within 13 months. Yes, five times, 13 months. I was seriously underprepared and I struggled to find inspiring content for myself. By meeting and connecting with these men, I'm trying to learn all there is about being a dad. We cover heart-to-heart topics between two dads and our aim is to inspire other fathers. And with this, hopefully we can make a positive impact on families around the world. Best advice I can give myself as a dad, uh, as I think of it, is probably to not worry too much and uh, to let go. My next guest is Yat Siu. Yat is a very successful, impressive entrepreneur. He's an angel investor and he's based in Hong Kong. He was born and also grew up in Vienna, in Austria, and he studied arts and music. He's one of those multifaceted, amazing super brains who can truly think outside the box, but he also has the gift to explain his ideas well. Yat has been named the global leader of tomorrow and also a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. He founded Hong Kong's first internet provider. He's built and sold numerous successful businesses and he runs a very successful accelerator for blockchain and AI startups. How's that? Both his parents are Chinese, they're professional musicians, and so having grown up in Vienna with that background, it comes at no surprise to me that he has amazing insight and he's very creative. He's humble and he's very funny actually. I met Yat at the last Entrepreneurs' Organization's GLC, the Global Leadership Conference in Macau. And what intrigued me the most was that he didn't do the usual business talk, but he actually held a keynote on how we should educate our children in these changing times where technology advances faster than we can comprehend. His views of the digitalized world and how our children grow up in it blew me away. We did a few sessions and I can tell you that Yat is an amazing and involved dad. He's truly thought about how he wants to bring up his kids and he also really is very intentional on the relationship he's aiming to have with them or that he's building with them really. My key takeaways as a dad were, if you want to truly connect with your children and understand them, immerse yourself in their worlds, that is, digital worlds. Accept that your children will kick your butt in various fields at the age of eight. And this is a powerful and very humbling insight, actually. And empathy beats information arbitrage every single time. This you have to consider in schooling as well as in parenting. With that, enjoy. Here's Yat you. Yat, thank you so much for being with me and uh, being part of Being Dad. I'm super stoked to have you. Thank you. I was super inspired by your talk at uh, GLC and, of course, our last conversation, actually two conversations. You have three kids, um, two boys and one girl. Mm -hmm. You're married. Can you make a quick intro for our listeners about yourself? Who is Yat Siu? Well, as, a, as you had already mentioned, um, you know, I am a father of three um, and I have been uh, with my wife for 20 odd years. So, you know, uh, my children are 14, 12 and 9, as you said, a boy, girl, boy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, they've sort of, I guess, all, all kids are the apples of my eye, obviously. Uh, I am myself, however, uh, from as a background, never had siblings. Uh, so I'm from, you know, I was actually, I grew up in Vienna. I was born in Vienna uh, to, uh, I guess, two um, musical parents, hence the fact that I grew up in Vienna and also studied music. But uh, unlike my own family, actually, uh, my parents actually split up when I was very young. And so I grew up really with my mother who took care of me. Um, but she, it was interesting because she was an artist. And so uh, as a performing artist at the time, and then eventually as a sort of um, uh, opera director, uh, she wasn't always home. So in a way, you could say that uh, I, w I lived often by myself uh, in, in Vienna, which was interesting. Uh, and, and I guess it sort of, I guess, shaped the experience growing up essentially with a, a single working mother in the 70s and the, in the 80s, which of course, generationally was also different because uh, it still is to some extent, but Vienna, uh, and I'm actually here in Vienna right now, but uh, Vienna is, uh, is a, quite a conservative place. So all of these things come together. And I guess these experiences shape you. But yeah, 
Uh, and professionally, I've, I've been in the tech industry. I'm an entrepreneur. You know, obviously, that's why you know, I'm part of EO. And, uh, and the business I have, it's a global business uh, in the areas, actually in the multiple areas of sort of uh, blockchain, games, uh, and also education. And that's an inspiring topic I want to I wanna speak to you about, actually. But before we speak about education, um, you shared something with me, I wrote it down here, and that is you desire to be, you desire a situation where your kids are your friends. A lot of people have a different view on that, but I found it very inspiring. Can you share a bit where this comes from? Um, you touched on grandparents and, um, you know, values. and. Well, so I think, I think there's a few things. I think if you think about the, the aspect of generation that we, that we have today, it used to be, uh, and it still is to an extent, um, a hierarchical society. As much as we talk about sort of, you know, flat hierarchies and we should all be equal and whatever, yeah. uh, we seem to do that when we're adults or at least talk about it. But we don't seem to do that with our children. Uh, so we don't really consider our children as equals. We consider them as, in a way, inferior, even if we mean to do so in a loving way. And I think that is a structure that used to make a lot of sense because, you know, we were, as humans, uh, we were, as we we're older, we are stronger, we're physically stronger. Uh, we have arguably more wisdom and we aim to protect our children. And that is a role, of course, that I think parents should continue to do. Uh, but the difference is that protection can also be overbearing. So if you're basically protecting too much, then you create a cage. And in that cage, you don't get to see anything. A little bit like sort of, you know, the, the emperor that's basically in, in the Forbidden City and yeah. he doesn't actually know what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, now, what's changed is we are in a world that is predominantly or moving towards to be predominantly virtual. And in a world like that, uh, things like physical strength and past wisdom doesn't necessarily matter. Right? So when you think about it in video games, uh, I would be hard-pressed to beat my nine-year-old in a game. Right? <laughs> and I think most people will agree, yeah, at least you know, of my generation, and I'm in this industry, and I still you know, get my ass whooped by you know, of nine, 10, 11, 12-year-olds. Right? Yeah. Um, And uh, that's one aspect. But the other one is also about wisdom. So the assumption is that, of course, back then we had knowledge just because we accumulated it over time because it's experiences and that matters. But uh, children have all of the knowledge, not necessarily experience, but all of the knowledge that actually you have as well because we have something called Google or Wikipedia. And you see this issue with schools where you no longer does a teacher have dominion over exclusive knowledge that you don't have. Yeah. Right. Actually, you may have an experience that a child doesn't have, but you don't have knowledge that the child doesn't have. Right. That, yeah. that paradigm has changed. But even just 30 years ago, uh, the teacher had a hierarchical dominance. He was able to teach you something that you definitely did not know. Right? Yeah. And now, especially as the kids get older, there's a very high chance that uh, the kids would go like, well, hold on a second. This thing you spoke about black holes, uh, I don't think that's right anymore. Right. Uh, you know, my, my older son is really into um, uh, quantum physics uh, when he was uh, 12 years old. And, you know, not in a, like, he's not like a genius or anything. He just had an interest in it. He was just studying it and reading up on it um, and talking about all these sorts of you know, differences between the different kinds of matters and, you know, sort of quantum mechanics. And, and, uh, and then when they were starting to teach around sort of the classic rules of physics, he was puzzled, right? And he couldn't, um, but he couldn't, Uh, be in a position to argue with his teacher or have a conversation around it because the teacher actually didn't have anything to discuss around, you know, or knowledge to talk about quantum physics or quantum mechanics. Uh, and the notion of what is quantum mechanics for a, let's call it maybe even 16-year-old boy, is not a mystery or girl, right? I mean, actually, if you, you could be even 12 or 13 and you would understand at least the principles of quantum mechanics, You know, and the theories around, let's call it, you know, the multiverse, right? Or string theory. I mean, these are things that are not really a mystery anymore in terms of the understanding. Uh, but you cannot have a conversation with your primary or high school teacher around that. And I don't know that that's right anymore to expect that you should only have a conversation with an adult when they are supposed to know more than you. Right? That's a paradigm that needs to change. Uh, children can teach us stuff, Right. Um, you know, in the talk I gave at GLG, I mean, at, 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 uh, at GLC, I, uh, you know, I ended up with this sort of slide um, where, um, you know, the kids 
um, who are teaching their parents how to use a QR code because to get to yeah. the work of the students that. had to go to a QR code. Yeah. And that was maybe seven or eight years ago. And, you know, today we'd go, oh, everyone knows a QR code. But back then they didn't. And the children who were, you know, seven or eight taught their parents about something uh, that was obviously maybe ubiquitous in some parts of the world, but completely unknown to that generation. Yeah. So I think that's what I mean when I talk about sort of the equality. Now we'll talk about friendship. It means, uh, and this is a personal desire, maybe, I, and I don't know whether other parents want that, right? That's a very personal question. Yeah. But I wish, you know, that I could have a relationship with my mother the way that um, I at least aspire to build a relationship with my children. And that is to say that we can be friends and we can be open about our feelings and emotions, um, much like what we do at EO, right? And share something, you know, without judgment, as we do when we're hanging out with good friends. Yeah. Um, and this is a problem with a hierarchical relationship because a hierarchical relationship is you always have judgment, right? You know, yeah. is your homework good? You know, do you have the right friends? <laughs> right? You know, <laughs> it's, a like, good one. it's very different, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, um, I, I dread the day when, uh, when my daughter will come to me and talk about potentially about, you know, boy issues, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like a nightmare, right? <laughs> However, I do want her to know that she can talk to me yeah, about she it, must, right? Yeah. And to be able yeah. to to uh, share at least as a friend yeah. and not necessarily as a father. Because as a father, I might have shotgun in hand and say, mm. <laughs> <laughs> No boyfriend. But, but as a, but as a <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. But, but, uh, but as, a, as a friend, you listen and you try yeah. to empathize and you, you, you know, even if it is strange. But I want to be able to share that. And I think, and, and I also look at it at an older age, right? Um, and I, I look at, not just my relationship with my mother, but with many relationships with children and their parents, there is a sense of hierarchy. There is a sense of sort of, um, you know, um, role. And I don't know that that is necessarily, well, I don't desire it. And I don't know that that is necessarily healthy because I look at my mother and, you know, when my grandchildren are with her, she's like pudding. Right, Different she's like, person. "Oh, you're yeah. so sweet. You, I love you. Whatever, you know." She spoils her. Just all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, "Wait, wait, you, uh, like you were never like that with me. Like, what's wrong? Right? This is totally unfair, right? I grew up yeah, all yeah. this time, and for for me, it was, you know, in a, of course, it was a form of love, but for me, it was more discipline. It was, uh, you know, uh, you know, tasks that had to be done. You know, she wasn't like totally into like the homework stuff." I still had to practice my music with her, though, you know, um, and and it was it was a different kind of relationship, and uh, and I wish I, I you know I wish it to be different for children. I actually think also we live longer, right? So if we expect where we will go uh, in the future, um, you know, we're going to live. You know, what, what is it? The expectation is that we yeah, humanity easy. will average a hundred and twenty years or something. Right? If we don't burn the planet, I mean, yeah. It is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that means we, you know, we may not even we may live to see not just our grandchildren, but our great grandchildren. Yes, right. My grandmother knows a, my children. She's a, she's a hundred. Yeah, and she she's still awake. Yeah. So that's yeah. so. But so, I want to stick with this point, please, with the, because we are talking. We're saying that, or you literally coined this uh, term, and I found it super powerful. You said that information arbitrage no longer works, which literally you just explained, right? So we mm -hmm. are moving away from a situation where I hold power through information as a parent or an, an elder, and I'm need to I need to be able to move into my children's world that is much more virtual. For instance, you made the example yes. with the computer game, um, but I want to talk about that later. So we talked about okay, how how do you work in in the home then in your home? How does it work if you can't? Uh, if you choose not to apply hard rules, and because I say so, this is how it works. So it's almost a non-authoritarian kind of approach. Um, you explained to me that you work on values. And um, what I found really powerful was that you said, well, the rules that we have in the house apply for everyone. So can you talk about that? Yes. Well, so when, when I talk about values, uh, I mean things like, you know, you know, say the truth, you know, um, you know, be honest, uh, show empathy. I mean, those are values that I think are eternal. And I actually yeah. think that those are roles that not only parents, but frankly, I think teachers need to also teach. Of course. Uh, because the role, speaking of the knowledge arbitrage, again, right, teachers or parents actually may not have the knowledge that our children have 
Certainly not at the same age. Right? Oh, if I think of what I knew yeah. when I was 12 and what my children know at that age, it's like worlds apart, right? Yeah. So, so you, can't, you can't really sort of even try to compete on that basis, and it's probably not correct. But what you, you know, want to do is be able to sort of pass on the, the skills that you need to have from a sort of a humanity standpoint. You know, how do you cooperate well? How do you build strong relationships? Uh, and I think that's the part that I think we really we really have to sort of um, develop for our children. Now, that means that uh, value-wise as well, it means that we have to apply that in our home. Right? So that means it also applies to all the members, not just our children. Because it's a little bit sort of a, a hypocrisy if uh, you can do it and they cannot. Yeah. And, and what you actually end up doing, and sometimes, uh, truth be told, we are guilty of it. Because we do have a dominant position, right? Because, you know, you're living in our house, right? And, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, I bring food to the table. Therefore, sometimes it's easy to say, well, you know, because it's my place and it's my money, I could do whatever I want, right? Yeah, um, that's so called emotional blackmailing, right? It, it's, it's one of those things. Yeah. Whereas for our, you know, um, but the example that I think it gives to our children is that, well, if, I finally have money, and if I finally have all these things, then I can do that too, right? And there are some people who say, yes, that's what I want to teach you, right? That, and that could be a value statement for the parents, because the parents feel like you need to earn it. That's their idea of indicating earning. So I can't necessarily say whether that style or other style is wrong, right? Everyone has their own sense of value, right? Uh, but in our value, we want to be able to sort of really um, uh, promote uh, Equality, if it was, you know, and equality is very sort of sometimes could be considered very esoteric and sort of very utopian. But the idea is that the same rules apply to all. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that the emotional blackmailing that you're referring to is um, can be aggressive, but can also be sort of passive aggressive, right? And a passive aggressive way is to basically just um, say, "Well, it's my place. Uh, I earned it, uh, and I can kind of do what I want." Uh, and while, you know, on one hand, it's more com convenient. So, you know, I think uh, when, you, when you look at emotional blackmailing, uh, it's, uh, you know, because of the fact that maybe you have power, right? And I'm, it's my house, you know, I can do whatever I want. Uh, the signal that you would be sending to your children is that, well, when I have power, right? And when I have all of this, then I can do the same thing, right? That's kind of the value part that we want to be consistent on. Now, having said that, there are, of course, um, maybe parents or individuals who might think that is the right value. In, you know, and, and you know, I think we will have met people in our life as well that have, let's say, a different kind of attitude towards that. So uh, I can't necessarily sort of say what is right or what is wrong. Right? I think simply for parents, you know, the values that you are most comfortable with and you want to continue to live with um, is the ones that you want to pass down to our children. And if you desire for your children to have a strong sense of empathy and a strong sense of equality and justice, right? If you want that for your children, then you need to have consistency in your home. Because if you don't, you can talk about justice and equality and empathy all day, but your children won't believe you. Uh, and you see the same is true at work, right? If you are not consistent with your values at work, then the people won't work with you in a consistent manner either. Uh, so I don't think that rule applies um, any different than to our children. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I wanted to speak to you. There was one topic that I found is particularly interesting, and that was the topic on video gaming. So you had a very interesting, um, I should say, example on how you apply this in the home, because a lot of dads speak to me about, and parents have this issue with oh, devices and you know yeah. screens and screen time, and it's a big issue in the house. So you had a good approach around that. Please, can you can you share share your insight on this? Uh, so when it comes to video games and, 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 and kids, I think the, the one part that I look at it is, I, said this, I, I gave an example of the sort of study that was given at, uh, you know, with, um, um, I think, oh shoot, I forgot the name of the organization. Um, but you know, it, there's a study that came out uh, and it was widely quoted. And the study said that 91% uh, of um, children play video games. So and my only question was, Uh, what happened to the other 9%? Because obviously I think every other person uh, who, who has kids would be like, what? They're children who don't play video games? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know who those are. But yeah. anyway, right? So 91%. And then there's 9% that are, I guess, different, you know? Blessed diversity. Uh, but, for, um, 
But the, but the counterpart of that study, which was equally, I think, more disturbing, was that something like over 70% of parents rarely, if ever, engage with their children in video games. So there you go. Right? Mm -hmm. You've got this big gap where big all of your children, yeah. if not mm -hmm. most of them, are playing games or engaging in an activity. Let's just not talk about it being games. And you know nothing about it and you choose not to. Right? So if yeah. you know, and it's evil, yeah, already just because you don't exactly, know. and it's yeah. and it's different, and you're like, I don't know it, and therefore I will just reject it. Now, just imagine you apply that for any sport. You know, your kid comes up and says, I want to play soccer or football. I want to play tennis. Yeah, I want to play basketball. Uh, what's the ratio of parents who would engage with that? It's much larger, right? Of course. Yeah. Uh, so so that's sort of one big gap that we have to overcome. So my, my view on this is that we as parents do have to have, a, we have a duty as well to try to enter the world of the child and understand it better. Yeah. We don't have to necessarily enter it in a sort of active way, right? And, and that's scary because in that virtual world, actually your children are better than you, right? Uh, and they'll beat you up yeah. or, or they'll protect you or whatever it is that they do inside the game, they actually have power that you don't have. Right? which is maybe a little frightening because now you are vulnerable with your own children and you're admitting to a weakness that you may never have. I mean, parents don't usually are in a situation to admit weakness to their children ever, uh, or certainly not when they are young children, yeah. right? And you sort of... It's difficult. It's difficult, yeah. right? And you're giving up your position of power. Yeah. And I mean, in reality, this is something you shared as well. The child can make more money playing esports, for instance, than you ever will if you take this to an extreme, yes. right? Yeah. It's <laughs> a I crazy mean, situation. You know, you've got a whole <laughs> bunch of other things. As I said, physicality doesn't matter, right, anymore. Um, uh, yeah. You know, some of those esports champions are taking home millions of dollars and they're teenagers, right? Yeah. Um, I think the most recent uh, sort of uh, drone racing woman was eight years old, right? Because she basically had wow. the reflexes and skills to, you know, as an yeah. eight-year-old, to navigate her drone faster than someone else. And honestly, I don't know if, if yeah. it's, is it because her fingers are smaller? I have no idea, okay? But the thing is, she was just able yeah. to beat them. That's an amazing right? feature. Yeah. And yeah. So, so in that future, um, the situation completely changes, but yet we as parents are completely unengaged with it for the most part. Uh, and, and the other thing is, of course, that when you think about sports, we are very comfortable bringing our children and watching them play sports. So even if I don't play good basketball... I will go and watch a game with my kids, if not yeah. all the time, at least a few times, right? You know, and we all joke about the soccer moms or whatever, you know, they go watch, you know, the children's sort of sports and yeah. whatever, right? Um, and, or soccer dads, you know, but, but, uh, uh, but we don't do this with video games, right? We don't sort of sit there and talk to our children when they play Minecraft and say, what are you doing? That's cool, you know? Or you're not in their virtual world seeing what they're building. You just choose to separate. And you choose not to. And on one hand, we as parents are saying, oh, you know, especially when the kids get older, like, you know, they're not spending time with us. You know, it's not cool to hang with parents. But here we are actually rejecting them. We are actually saying, yeah. I don't want to engage with you. And in fact, I want to set rules around you. And I want to make sure that that thing that I don't know, you have to basically uh, limit it. Because if you limit it, that uh, if you limit it, then I get to spend more time with you, right? So when you think about it the other yeah. way, it actually becomes a more selfish response. I want to spend time with you because, you know, I love you and I, I want to spend more time with you. Uh, but uh, instead of me spending more time with you in your world, I am almost demanding that you spend time in my world, right? And do the things I like. Um, and I think we as adults can certainly appreciate, you know, I won't speak for everyone else, but, you know, I will go shopping with my wife um, and I can't say it's the most pleasurable experience. And often she will say, it's okay. I appreciate you've been here shopping with me and, yeah, and, and, and looking at stuff, but you yeah. may go now. And I think, you know, there could be a similar, similar situation, but at least we show the patience and the empathy to, to try to sort of uh, at least understand the other side. Uh, and again, with video games. So, but there is the standpoint that it, like you say, it can get too much because, I mean, computer games are highly addictive. I can speak for myself, you know, mm. it's, it can be like, if you're into a game, it can be super addictive. So you shared how you um, yes. taught your son to, to rather than impose a limit on, on, him, on himself and to, to force him kind of, you taught him how to self-control. Can right. you share, can you share? So it's understanding, that? right? And I think that, I think, 
that is true for almost everything. So video games is just one thing. And again, I think it has to do with the fact that we as most parents, because they don't play games and they don't understand this world, and it is somewhat our industry, uh, we fear it because we don't understand it. But yet, you know, we do seem to understand other things. Like we understand football, we understand basketball, we understand sports. Uh, so there are different risks, like, you know, children can injure themselves physically, right? Or they can sort of, you know, um, have other problems around it. But because we as parents are connected to it better, we understand it. So we're like, oh, okay, your knee hurts. Mm -hmm. You know, make sure you do this, you know, do your swimming exercises so you can manage that, right? Um, you know, or, or you know, uh, have some downtime or something like this. So we, we are here to take this kind of pill or something. So as parents, we understand that world. And so we know how to mitigate. But when it comes to video games, you know, it's the ignorance, right? Uh, and so before I go into sort of the method, uh, I want to give an example here, which, which I gave it a talk, right? Which is in the early 80s, there was an article uh, and there were several of them, but this was one that struck out. And it was basically talking about um, the evil that is Pac-Man. And, uh, you know, and it had this, uh, in, yeah, it had this incredible visual of Pac-Man, essentially, like the Pied Piper, taking all the children in the back, and they were all just zombieing along because Pac-Man was stealing yeah, yeah. your children. Okay. Now, of course... This is arcade games in, in, on a big yes, box, exactly. right? Yes, exactly. Arcade games and, and, the Atari, and the Atari 2600. Uh, and, you know, and today, the idea that, you know, Pac-Man is bad and will steal your children is ludicrous and we sit yeah. here and we just laugh at it and go this is like hilarious right but then when you replace the word pac-man with minecraft or fortnite or something like that yeah. uh then it's no longer funny it's like yes hmm, not sure about that right uh, you know it is evil and it, it comes down to sort of understanding we understand pac-man better and therefore we're not as threatened but we don't understand minecraft we don't understand um you know we don't understand uh fortnite and so we feel threatened now, what I did with my son in the example uh, sort of uh, um, experience I had was he was very addicted to, um, to, to uh, a game. In fact, it was at the time it was uh, uh, Clash Royale. Uh, and <clears throat> so, uh, and we could see, right? Because one of the rules we always made before was finish the game and then stop. And that was okay, right? Because, you know, um, in the real world, you have to finish an episode as well, right? We don't to get disconnected when we're halfway or five minutes before the end of that Game of Thrones seasons, right? We finish the episode yeah. and then we go, right? Yeah. Uh, and games is the same as well. You just need to understand where you set that parameter. But sometimes you get addicted um, and you binge. Uh, and, you know, we, we do the same when we watch TV as well. Sometimes we start watching one episode and, oh, on Netflix, you've got 20 of them. Before you know it, no. it's, <laughs> you know, 12 hours has passed and you just basically watched like everything there is, right? Um, but, you know, again, we seem to understand what happened and we can mediate. And when you don't, that's a problem. And so what happened to my son, and I think what happens to many children is they actually don't understand what's happening to them. So he was falling into the dopamine loop that um, happens, you know, not just in games, but obviously when you watch uh, uh, TV shows as well, when you get sort of with the cliffhangers. Yeah. And so he was getting through these moments where he's winning and losing, and then he was losing more than he was winning, and it was getting frustrating for him, and it was affecting his mood. Uh, and he kept playing, and he started sort of being like addicted to it. But he didn't really know what it did to him, right? And I personally, I believe people are very self-preservative anyway. So if they know that it's hurting you, then they will step back, right? But he didn't know what was happening. He just knew how he felt, but he didn't know why. And so what I did was... I tried to make him understand. I said, look, you can go play Clash Royale as much as you want. But my only condition is that you have to write a journal entry after every game, express the feelings that you felt, and monitor your heart rate. That was it. Right? And, uh, and there was an added he condition. He was 12, you said. He was 12 at the time. He was 12, yes. just context. Um, uh, and that's right, he was 12. And uh, on top of it, I also made an added rule. He had to play at least a fixed number of games. I forgot if it was eight or 10, but he could not stop when he wanted to, if he didn't want to, because there were some moments in time <laughs> where he didn't want to because yeah. he was afraid of losing his position. No, no, no. If you want to play, you play yeah. 10. Or, you know, if you don't play one, you play 10, yeah. right? Because you need to understand the cycle. You need to understand what happens to the game, both when you win and lose and how you feel. So he did that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, his, he, he, he learned that his heart rate would go up, right? Uh, in during the games, he learned that he felt sort of anguish and sort of anxiety, 
um, nervousness or when he won, he was exhilarated and he was happy. You know, he, he understood this. And we did this for uh, like almost two weeks. Uh, and at the end of it, he just decided, okay, I'm done. I'm just turning off the game. And he, uh, he just deleted the game himself. Now, he knew, of course, that the profile wasn't gone forever, right? So you could always get back to it. Yeah. But he also knew that, you know, um, what happened to him. And that signal, that, that learning stayed with him. Because now, whenever he plays a game uh, and he thinks it's getting to him, he just turns it off. Right? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and it was funny because he was playing sort of another game. Uh, and his uh, younger brother was like, oh, so, so um, you know, let's play together. So, no, I just, I just uninstalled it. Like, I'm just, I'm done with it. I said, why do you uninstall it? Uh, it was, it was getting to me. Right. And it's yeah, self-preservation. That's super powerful. Right. So literally he yeah. learned the insight. Yeah. He learned the insight he because he knew, gained a better understanding. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he knew, you know, that the AI was doing something that was trying to get him in. He knew that, um, you know, his, uh, his feelings and emotions were getting out of whack uh, and that he was feeling, you know, more anguish than he was feeling happiness. Uh, and so there were yeah. all these things that came in there and he was able to self-analyze. And when we think about what we want for our children, at least what I want for my children, uh, I want him to problem solve himself, right? Uh, and yeah. and uh, going back to the earlier point about friendship as well, I think the other thing is that we can have these conversations around these things because we are kind of together in this as opposed to I'm superior to this, right? Um, and I think it was mm -hmm. also important to explain to him that um, I also, you know, had sort of, you know, why am I doing this is because it's an experience that I've had as well, right? I've had a game addictions as well. I'm trying to teach you sort of, um, you know, how I sort of deal with this and try to understand it. And for me, and I think the same was true for my son, is the breaking down and removing the mystery. If you understand the uh, solving, if you can solve the mystery, if you understand how it works, then it's not magic anymore, right? Um, it's still fun, yeah. but it's not magic, right? When it's a sort of a mystery, when it's magic, then, then it feels... Um, um, uh, maybe a little bit more exciting, but also more dangerous. And I think for most parents, video games is magic, uh, which it should really shouldn't be. That, and I think by enabling your son to understand what's going on, you're also enabling him to make his own decisions, which is much more powerful than telling him, oh, you can see, uh, you can see that, you know, uh, 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 you're upset now, so just stop playing already, you know. Right. That won't work because it doesn't get through to him. And it's not his decision. You said something important. Yeah. It's not his decision. You're That's making right. the decision for him. That's yeah. right. You said something important earlier about learning. So we talked about schools the last time a lot. And schooling for me was certainly was a big problem, the way it, it's structured. Can you talk about, a bit about learning? Because that's also from your talk, right? And you're a big expert on this. Can you talk about learning and what your um, thoughts are around education? So, you know, I guess uh, the... the um a great quote by Joey Ito, uh, who's now sort of um, sort of uh, heads the media lab uh, at MIT, uh, was that he said that uh, education is something that people do to you. Learning is what you do to yourself. And I think that is very much uh, true. And I think schools ought to try as much as possible, as well as parents, of course, to encourage the children to be learners and not be educated too. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the thing that I find really important as well is that the skills that we need for the future as well um, require children to be much more divergent in their thinking and creative in their abilities. Now, many schools talk mm -hmm. about, yes, you need to be innovative, right? And you need to be creative and we do all of that stuff. But the problem is that once you send them, the kids in most of these schools, something else happens and they actually um, become quite the opposite. And, and there's an interesting study, which I encourage every parent to take a look at by George Land. And, um, and, uh, and what he did there was um, he created, uh, so he, he did these divergent thinking tests, uh, which were basically for uh, NASA scientists. Uh, and the idea was that we would only recruit strong NASA scientists, not because they were super smart, but they had to be really divergent because, you know, when you, fly someone to the moon and something happens, uh, you need to make sure that yeah. the engineer is a great problem solver. Make a plan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Because, you know, not a lot of people will have sent people to the moon, if ever, right? So it's, it's yeah. kind of a problem. So yeah. you need these strong divergent thinking tests. And he did this test and he followed children until the age of 15. And then he gave us this exact same test to children, uh, to, to adults when they were 21 years of age, right? Sort of inspired by the work he did at NASA. 
And so at five years of age, 98% of the children were able to solve the problems divergently. Now that's amazing, right? Yeah. But by the time they were 10 years of age, it dropped to 30%. It's only five that's years. devastating. Yes, it's, it's yeah. huge, right? And then by the time they were 15, it was like 12%, and the adults scored a miserable 2%. So you could see this gradual, gradual decline into nothingness when it comes to being creative. So the conclusion, which is also actually um, formed part of the work of what Ken Robinson spoke about, right? Ken Robinson spoke about how yeah, schools build about creativity, yeah. uh, and it was actually that work uh, that he referenced to uh, in his in his in his talk. Um, although he didn't reference it to in his, t- his speech, in his actually written work, he talks about that as well as as evidence, uh, which is basically that schools actually um, destroy creativity in children, um, and that we are actually all born creatively, and that there is no such thing as you know, you're more creative than the other. You might have a different kind of creativity, but that doesn't mean that I'm more creative than you, right? It's a myth because the creative geniuses that we seem to see today or the entrepreneurs that are changing the world have become so uh, sort of in spite of the system, not because of the system. Uh, and, and, And so the program that, you know, I am always thinking of myself for our children and I think we as parents should be very seriously looking at is, how can we preserve the creativity of our children rather than, you know, grow it? Well, you grow it, yes, but rather than sort of bring it out or something, you know, something that didn't exist. As if creativity was something that you can educate into, right? I can, I can teach you to be creative, right? Follow the five steps of creativity and you will be creative. I mean, <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like these innovation camps. Come here and you will become innovative, right? I mean, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's actually we all have that potential and we just have to make sure that we don't steal it away. But schools are about sort of rules. Uh, and, 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 and it's difficult because in the schooling environment, uh, a teacher teaches a curriculum that is based on the past as well. It's something, it's just a reference. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you know, teachers are not futurists. They're not going to talk about, well, you know, 10 years from now, the world's going to look like this. So let me teach you the mm-hmm. things that you might need to know. They don't do that. Yeah. Right? It's not yeah, their job. Point. Um, and, yeah. and so you have this sort of scenario where they teach the past, and that means the methods are also older as well, because it works. But what we're doing is we're teaching our children to be good human calculators, right? Uh, and we're teaching them to memorize things still. Uh, when we also know that because of AI and because of the advancement of technology, all of this will be irrelevant, right? We do not need to be good at math. We need to understand the math, but we don't really need to understand how to calculate faster than a computer, because we will never be able to, right? And yet here we are still being amazed and awarding people who can basically um, sort of do math faster than someone else, which is not a relevant skill necessarily, right? Um, the creative skill is more important, the ability to think out of the box and be divergent in your approach and have empathy. And so this is the thing when we think about design thinking, uh, what is the most important thing in design thinking? It's developing empathy, right? To understand yeah. the problems of the other or the feelings of the other so that you can empathize and then solve that problem. But when you think of schools, most schools don't actually um, do that because it's hard. It's hard to give a score of you were more empathetic than the other one. They don't know how to do that. Uh, and so since you can't yeah. grade it, uh, I can't score it. I'd rather not even go there. And so what we do is we end up creating these, let's call it design thinking classes in, in, in our primary schools, which are not part of the entire curriculum. They're like a section. Like it's the time to be creative section between five to six. Let's be creative, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's hard. Uh, and, 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 and that creates uh, the other thing, which is that teachers treat you all the same, right? So it's an industrial style of teaching. Um, we are also all taught not just the same um, subjects, uh, but we're also taught uh, at the same age level as if every 12-year-old is exactly the same, right? Uh, which is nonsense, right? I yeah. mean, uh, you know, you may have an 11-year-old who has more interest in math than, than a 13-year-old, um, and he, but the 11-year-old should be maybe in the class of a 13-year-old, and a 13-year-old should be in a class of a you know, nine, 10-year-old in a different subject. You should be able to have that and adjust to the individual need. Uh, instead, we make this decision that when you're 12, you have to be 12. You have to act like 12, right? You know, and, yeah. and yeah. then you enter the real world and somehow when you're moving from 35 to 38, you're in your late 30s. 
<laughs> and that's all one bucket, right? As if, as if that's okay now, right? Um, and we're not in a, well, you're not, you know, the real world doesn't work in terms of, well, you're 36. Act like a 36-year-old, will you now, right? Or you're 37. You need to do what 37-year-olds yeah. do, right? But in school, uh, until you get out of it, Well, literally, you have yeah. to dump you have to dumb kids down, right? In order to make everybody twelve, you have to slow everybody down to the, to the slowest person in the group, right? Uh, well, it's it's one thing, um, but also I think the you know the other problem is, is that it develops unfortunately a scenario where um, you don't have uh, it's bad for self esteem for the children who don't fit into that environment, uh, and it yeah. also creates frankly a very sort of a scenario where you have very little empathy for for the issues of others. So I love the sort of kind of how the Finnish education system um, bases it, right? The first principle is around equality. Now, equality doesn't mean that everyone gets exactly the same education. That's part of it. It means also that, you know, if you have to support everyone to get to the same level. So if you're really good at math, then actually what happens is I don't really have to focus too much on you. You're good. Actually, your job, who, who's good at math, should help the other kids who are maybe not as good as math to come up. Now, the lesson here, of course, is one of empathy. Yeah. Um, uh, and of course, the other one who receives it also um, gains from it as well. Uh, and as a result, I find that an education system like that is, is, has a far stronger connection because what it also does is build a network of trust. Right? So you're developing strong networks of trust at a very young age. Now, schools, on the other hand, actually inadvertently destroy trust because it's a hierarchy. So, you know, how many people would necessarily, you know, especially if you're in the top of your class, want to sort of share your success, right? You don't have a reward to be shared for your success because you grade it on a curve, right? The top 5% get to go into, you know, I don't know, happy land, right? Whether it's university or whatever of their choice, right? And the bottom 5% go into, you know, Hell, I mean, you know, it's kind of, it's actually very medieval, right? I mean, and, and, that, and, that's, and that's the fear of parents, right? Parents are like, oh my goodness, if my child is, you know, at the bottom half, he will live a hellish life, uh, whereas the one who gets at the top of the school, he yeah. will go to heaven, right? I mean, basically. And, and that system somehow per, sort of has sort of pervaded and I frankly think corrupted the entire education framework until they get into college. You know, that recent scandal where, you know, um, parents basically were caught bribing sort of admission officers and other people to get their kids into top colleges is a perfect example of how this is all wrong and completely messed up, right? Um, but that's, that's, a, that's an issue because in that kind of world, it's dog-eat-dog. Dog. And that is not, you know, and, and I don't yeah. like that expression really because I, I really love dogs. But anyway, the point is that, you know, in, 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 a, in a world like that, Uh, you are basically uh, teaching that uh, you are, you know, it's like, don't care about the others, just care about yourself and create a very sort of selfish mind frame. Mm -hmm. But what we also know is that in the future, uh, and actually even at the present, your real strength comes from your relationships and your connections and comes from network intelligence. So how do you build network intelligence, which is, you know, one of the true recipes of success Uh, that is because you have empathy and you can build relationships and you can build trust. How do you build trust? By being consistent, by having good values, right? You know, people don't trust people who stab people in the back, right? Uh, people trust yep. people who have shown that they care and they do what they do and they have strong values or whatever it is that they demonstrate. Um, and these are things that uh, schools talk about, right? So they do recognize that it's important, but they don't really action on it because the system doesn't allow them to. Right. And so I think it's very unfair for teachers because that's, I mean, it's not necessarily saying that the teachers themselves are against it. They just are not given the latitude to do so. Right? When you think about teachers, they are every year, especially with, between primary and uh, primary, in the primary school to like high school, have to teach a new group of children. It's like if you run a company, you have 100% turnover. You know, when you have 100% turnover in a company, it's death. Wow. Right? Yeah, it's so. death. And you have to do the same thing over and over and over every year, and you don't That's have right. choice over how what you change because curriculum is That's right. predefined. And you have to you and, and the teacher has to uh, do the same thing every year. And that doesn't that's not good yeah. either. <laughs> if you have to no. if you have to do that. So so there's many so you, so in a way, teachers stand stand still in time. That profession. Can you share the uh, the example on how you taught your son um 
helped him get through SAST. Ah, okay, yes. That was well, a good one. Yes, yes. So uh, this, this is an experience I had when I basically sent, um, um, uh, so Anton, that's the name of my, my, my eldest son, and he had very particular interests. Uh, and he wasn't, you know, he was, he went to a more Chinese school. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, I remember this example, uh, he, he answered the, uh, the, the answer correctly, but he didn't do it in the way that the teacher wanted him to do. And so he got a big fat zero, right. For not answering it in the way the teacher needed him to. I think some of us parents may empathize with this because we may every once in a while get into that same situation, even though he was able to just answer it correctly. So he failed this math test. And I had a conversation with, you know, math teacher and tried to explain to her, well, what's wrong with this, right? And actually, in fact, you are probably teaching him that there is only one right answer, right? Uh, which is not true because even yeah. in math, there are many yeah. ways in which you can get to the right answer, yeah. right? You know, and that's yeah. what life is. But he, uh, you know, and the you know, teacher just listened to me and didn't really care, obviously. And then, you know, I thought I was, made my message. It drives clear. me mad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then probably the teacher's like, oh, some crazy parent telling me how to teach, right? Seriously, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, another one. And then um, uh, the same thing happened, right? Uh, and then I said, hey, I thought we had a chat. I thought like, you know, we connected here, right? It's like, you know, uh, <laughs> obviously we didn't. And then the teacher didn't even show up. Like, I don't care about what you have to say. So I said, you know what, forget this, right? Uh, you know, this is not the right place. And if I'm not going to change the school, so I'm going to change his environment. So in that experience, I had him move to, I had to move him to another school, which is a more international school. And, and my, you know, um, I'll explain that story maybe later, but my, one of my key requirements was uh, a place that has as little homework as possible, right? That was my key requirement. <laughs> like find a school that had almost no, no homework. That's what I wanted. Um, but the problem was because it was a Chinese school, uh, his English wasn't so strong, you know, um, you know, because the English part was relatively weak. Uh, so even though we're an English speaking household, he didn't have the vocabulary, the, the reading skills necessary. So I said, you know what, they have to take a, a test like an SSAT. It's called an IC test, but it's the same thing, right? It's like a test they give. And I still yeah. think it's ridiculous that you test people who are, I think at that point, eight or nine years old or, or whatever it was. But anyway, they had to test him. Fine. So I sent him to. It speaks a, to the culture of having to perform, yeah. Yes, at the exactly. It's 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 awful, yeah. and, and and the test is three and a half hours as well, right? So and yeah, you basically do this in literally one setting. Anyway, so I, you know, what do most parents do? As as did we? We said, well, we go hire an expert, right? Who can sort of ace our kids through, like everyone else does, who pays all this money in the tutoring business to make uh, to make sure that our children ace this test, so they has a better chance in getting to that school. So I did that. We sent him there, you know, <clears throat> for a few months. Uh, and then he had his last mock test literally weeks before the test. Uh, and he scored 22 out of 100, which, you know, is a fail. Like, seriously. Uh -oh. Yeah, <laughs> really yeah. a horrible fail. And we're like, oh, holy <laughs> crap, right? And this is like, you know, the test is coming up. Uh, and, you know, before I just dropped him off. And because I'm on the homework side, relatively sort of hands off, I just thought, you know, you do your thing. And if there's a problem, you let us know. And the result was clearly a problem. As I sat down with the, um, with uh, with the, uh, you know, me, me and my wife, we just sat down with uh, with her and was like, hey, um, you know, it's not really quite working. <laughs> you know, what what can we do? What yeah. can you do? And so on. And she says, well, if you um, teach your son to sit down and listen to me, and it'll be okay. Yeah. But obviously, well, you know, he doesn't do that, so he's failing. Like it's his problem, right? Uh, and I was just like, wait. Um, but I'm paying you money in a private class to do this. Um, and, yeah. I, you know, private means you maybe can try to tailor it to see what works for him or something. And no, she had yeah. a rule book. It worked her way. And so if you couldn't adapt to how she taught, then, you know, um, tough luck. Right? You and wouldn't I'm, learn. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, there were a whole slew of other people um, that she was teaching as well. And they were probably doing just fine. So in her mind, she's like, well, it's fine for them. Why is it not fine for your kid? Right. So it's like your kid, your kid's yeah. the issue. Right. So I was, I was like, okay, forget it. Right. And we still had a few, few more weeks of classes, but I said, forget it. This is not going to work. I just took her out. Okay. I took my son out and said, we're going to do this ourselves. And at that point, you know, he obviously, you know, he, un he had whole anxiety because he did understand what it meant, right? He wasn't, you know, it wasn't stupid. He was like, you know, I need to do well to get into that other school. But he, uh, he, he didn't know how to, how, to, how to deal with it. And all he was told at that point was he wasn't good enough. 
Right? So all of these things collide. It's awful. So I, um, I basically spent, um, you know, I took actually days off work uh, and came up with a program that, uh, you know, and I did the usual thing where I basically tried to understand, well, what are the most popular words? You know, basically hack the system, yeah, right? Yeah. What are the most popular words? Yeah. You know, what comes up frequently? You know, what are the, what are the sort of, you know, what are the base words and everything? And try to teach that. But I had basically literally like five days left to do this. Uh, and so I took days off plus the weekend. And what I did was I created a um, curriculum where I would basically teach him based on Minecraft. So I created sentences and word structures around Minecraft for the vocabulary. That was the first thing I did. And it wasn't a lot of time because it was just applying words, you know, that were popular. So he understood the context and the meaning of it because he loved to play Minecraft. Uh, so that, yeah, was, yeah. that was one part that worked. Uh, the, the second thing that I did that uh, I think worked really uh, well was I also did a lot of hikes with him. So I walked with him and we spoke about it. Uh, we had this little black book, which he still remembers to this date, where he would write up his notes, uh, because I also knew that he was able to um, learn better by walking, right? Getting some fresh air and talking about it than sitting down, right? And this is, you know, some kids learn well sitting down. Some kids like to walk and be outdoors. And we talk about it, right? Uh, and I basically went through it with, with him uh, on the math, which was not the issue, but it was really on the English, right? Uh, and then, um, you know, finally, you know, we did the, we did the sort of tests and, and he was able to do the tests well, at least within the sort of mock tests. And when it finally came to it, he scored in, you know, in the 80 and 90th percentile and he got into the school. Wow. And it was only yeah, from five days, yeah. uh, five to six days. Uh, and so the lesson yeah. I took out of that was that clearly he had the capacity it just wasn't taught to him in the way that worked for him. With these inspirational words, Yad, thank you so, so much for, for visiting us and talking thank to you. us about being a dad. Okay, sure, no problem. And thank I'm you. sure a lot of the listeners will be inspired by your thoughts because they're not, you know, they're out of the ordinary, I would <laughs> My say. My pleasure. Thank you. Super. Thank you so much for listening in. I really hope you liked this session. If you did, please share this podcast. I'm sure you know someone who wants to hear this. Make no mistake, your shares are meaningful and they drive our success. So thank you for sharing. Thanks for listening in. Hope to catch you next time. Have an awesome day. Ciao.